Hello and thank you for listening to the Why They Win podcast. Today's guest is uh, Dr. Brian Leiter, who is, is the world's expert, world's finest and greatest expert on the philosopher Nietzsche. And the reason I want to talk about Nietzsche, or I'm asking him about Nietzsche, is because there are so many fascinating ideas about how to live your life. And I think they all come out in this podcast. Um, really, Dr. Leiter is is a fascinating individual. His view on a fascinating individual, Nietzsche, really should be heard. So, yeah, here's what he has to say. Dr. Leiter, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm just going to go straight into it. I just want to ask, what is it about Nietzsche that can improve people's lives if they understood it? <laughs> well, uh, so there are many different aspects to, uh, to Nietzsche's uh, thought. I think probably what's most relevant here is uh, how he conceives of what human beings are like. Um, his view has some similarities to, uh, to Freud's. Freud had read Nietzsche and was quite influenced by him. I think the crucial thing to realize is that Nietzsche thinks that um, our conscious lives, our conscious life is really only a very small part of who we actually are. That each of us is, as he likes to say, a, a bundle of drives, drives for power, for sex, for cruelty, for knowledge, uh, for food, um, and on and on. Um, and uh, Part of uh, understanding yourself is trying to understand um, the nature and strength of these drives that make up uh, who you are as a person. And these drives are not conscious. Um, Maybe sometimes they will rise to the level of consciousness, but part of the task of figuring out who you are is figuring out um, the particular order and bundle of drives that are... Uh, are important to you, right, that really make you who you are. Does that help as a starting point? Yes, it does. But I don't know how you'd, how would you drill down into who you really are if who you are isn't who you think you are? And wouldn't you go mad trying to do that? (laughs) Well, that wouldn't be very productive if you went mad trying to do that. (laughs) Um, You know, I think... um, it is partially, uh, partially. It, it, it is a long process of, I think, self-discovery. Um, as Nietzsche puts it in some of his, you know, early writings, you you have to sort of identify um, the passions, the things you keep returning to that you, as it were, can't get away from. Well, those That's are th- one indi- those are themes, or something. You know, what do you mean by that? I'm, I'm confused. For whatever reason, Nietzsche really spoke to me, right? Such that I've now spent thirty years trying to to figure him out. Um, but you know, it's the it's the kind of thing we talk about in ordinary life when we say, you know, people need to you know find their passion. A young person needs to figure out, right? This is what they really need to do more than more than anything else. Um, you know, Nietzsche thinks of us, he uses this metaphor a lot, he thinks of us a, a bit like plants. He uses the metaphor, think of a gardener tending to plants. And, um, and it's a long, slow process to nurture a plant to fruition. Um, 
And of course, there are limits to what a plant can become. If you've planted, you know, tomato seeds and you're growing tomato plants, you're not going to get an oak tree. You're not going to get an apple tree. But if you take care of these tomato seeds and nurture them as they grow, you'll get beautiful, ripe tomatoes at, at the end of the day. And Nietzsche's attitude towards the self is a bit like that, right? That is, you've got to figure out who you are, what you can be, right? And you can't be just anything, right? I was never going to be a professional basketball player. I wasn't destined, as it were, to be uh, a great military leader. Um, you've got to figure out, as it were, what the, what the seeds are with, within you, right? Um, and then undertake the very slow, patient, and long work of, as it were, nurturing um, those particular drives that, uh, that, that really belong to you. So you're saying nurture your drives? Well, figure out what they are, and then, of course, nurture the ones that, um, that you really want to nurture. I mean, the problem is we are a kind of bundle of drives, and sometimes, you know, some drives uh, get the better of us. Um, you know, think of somebody in the grips of, uh, of an addiction, right? So, so their drive for, for alcohol can ruin everything else, right? Can make them unable to realize any of the other drives that, uh, that they harbor um, with, within them. So one issue is how do you go about, as it were, mastering right, your, own, uh, your own drives, especially the unruly ones, the ones that might, as it were, take over in a way that you would be very unhappy with. Nietzsche has a wonderful discussion of this very topic uh, in a book he wrote in 1881 called Daybreak or Dawn. And this is from section uh, 109 of that book. Um, you might even think of it as an early 19th century exercise in kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, he talks about what do you do, um, how do you gain mastery um, over uh, a particularly strong and unruly drive, right? Let's imagine, right, say the drive for, you know, excessive consumption of alcohol or an illegal drug. Um, and he reviews different ways, right, actually identifies six different ways that you could uh, try to get control of it. So I'll just give you a couple of examples to give you a sense of how Nietzsche thinks. He says, says one can avoid opportunities for gratification in the drive of the drive, and through long and ever longer periods of non-gratification, weaken it and make it wither away. Right? Um, or one could deliberately give oneself over to the wild and unrestrained gratification of a drive in order to generate disgust with it, and with disgust to acquire a power over the drive. Right? Um, there's the intellectual artifice of associating its gratification in general so firmly with some very painful thought that after a little practice, the thought of its gratification is itself at once felt as very painful. Right? And he takes this to be a standard device of, of religions. Right? So you associate a certain drive, say the sex drive, with sin, right? And the effect of that, once you really internalize it, is, right, of course, guilt about sex, reluctance to satisfy the sex drive, um, and so on. So um, that's, that passage, I think, is illustrative of uh, the kind of 
uh, advice Nietzsche might have for people about uh, about how to become who they are, as he likes to put it. So, so you're saying that if, let's say, someone's you, know, they love drinking and they drink far too much. You're saying to drink to excess the point where you hate yourself for drinking and therefore you'll stop the habit. That well, that seems to be one of his suggestions. That's one of the the devices, right? That might in fact. Um, work now. I don't know. You know, I, I'm not sure. In the case of uh, alcohol or drug use, that's the best suggestion. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, one of the other ones, of course, he has is simply deny yourself gratification of that drive until it sort of gets weakened and fades away. And I suppose that would be the standard, um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous approach, right? Complete uh, abstinence as a way of, you know weakening rather than feeding that particular, that particular need. Um, you know, Nietzsche, I, I should also add, um, uh, you know, one of, his, uh, one of his famous ideas is the, the idea of um, the eternal return or eternal recurrence. Nietzsche says basically that you should aspire to live in such a way that you would be glad to will the repetition of your life in every particular again and again through eternity. Right? Now that's a very demanding standard, right? <laughs> that you should be able to live in such a way that everything in your life you were glad to have it repeated again and again and again um, through all through all eternity. Um, and he sometimes calls this uh, amor fati, which means the the love of fate, right? that you can accept yourself and everything about your life right, such that you would be happy to have it repeated. And for Nietzsche, it's very important to emphasize that um, you shouldn't want to, as it were, excise, cut out the bad things that have happened to you in your life. In Nietzsche's view, all of these things are equally essential. Right? And he takes that view about his own life. Nietzsche, as you, you may know, was afflicted with terrible physical maladies, you know, from his, basically his 20s on through the end, end of his life. He had migraines, nausea, sometimes he couldn't read because his vision was blurred. He suffered quite a lot, and yet when he writes his autobiography, um, he says, how could I fail to not be thankful to my entire life, that even all this physical suffering was indispensable for the kind of person Nietzsche uh, actually became. It was indispensable for his work that he had to overcome all this uh, physical misery as well. Do you, do you think we, we, we're too soft to that idea these days, that we we don't want the pain, even though the pain is important? Well, I think, um, I think that's a fair statement. Um, you know, ours is a, uh, a hedonistic culture, right? Pain is a bad thing. Pleasure is a good thing. Um, and that is certainly not Nietzsche's view. Uh, Nietzsche's view is that um, some pain is indispensable and also unavoidable. Uh, that is, it's just part of the human condition that um, we are going to suffer physical and psychological pain, right? Whether it is the loss of loved ones, illness, decline, and of course, ultimately death. Um, that can't be excised from life. It's an indispensable part of it. Um, and I think that's an important lesson 
that people need to take on board. If you devote yourself to nothing but the pursuit of pleasure and pleasant feelings, you're going to end up disappointed um, because life has other things in store. So, so what, why did you keep coming back to Nietzsche? I mean, it's a long time you've been an expert on the subject. Are, are you still learning about Nietzsche now? or, or you know, Well, it... yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think what originally attracted me to Nietzsche is he, he's a very gifted writer, which cannot be said of, uh, you know, many of the famous philosophers. Uh, if any of your listeners have read Kant um, or Spinoza, uh, they will know that uh, many philosophers are not fun to read. Nietzsche shares something with Plato, namely that he often adopts a kind of literary form of, uh, of expression. So th- that was the first thing. It's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful to read. It's kind of seductive. Um, but then I also found um, that his picture of what people were like, what the human mind is like, was just fascinating and it rang true to me in, in certain ways. But I will say my own views about Nietzsche have evolved and changed a bit um, over time. You know, when you're a, a graduate student, you have to write a dissertation according to the norms of your academic profession. You know, you focus on certain issues. Um, you know, in recent years, I've come back to, in a way, questions that are closer to what what you're you're asking about. I mean, Nietzsche took very seriously the problem of suffering. Um, the problem that suffering is an indispensable, inescapable feature of human existence. Um, and he had this provocative idea that the only way that uh, we could justify life in the face of suffering um, is uh, uh, to seek an aesthetic, artistic, aesthetic justification for existence. And this is one of Nietzsche's very elusive ideas, and it was one I didn't pay much attention to for a long time, but part of the, the luxury of being able to think and revisit texts for a very long time is you see new things, especially in someone who is such an evocative, rich, subtle writer who is engaged with history, with psychology, with literature, with culture, as well as with the, with the history of, uh, of philosophy. But as you may know, some people hate Nietzsche. Um, Steven Pinker, are you you're familiar with Steven yes. Pinker, the psychologist? Yeah. And Mr. Enlightenment now? He hates Nietzsche. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> well, I'm not entirely... Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I'll take a guess at it. Um, okay. It's not clear to me he's actually read Nietzsche based on what he's written. Um, you know... Pinker thinks of himself as an Enlightenment optimist, right? The world is getting better and better. Why? Because there's less pain and suffering. Now, you can already see why Nietzsche would <laughs> be looking askance at this. Um, and, you know, and he thinks of Nietzsche as someone who is not on board with the idea that the goal of human society should just be to make people happier and more content and so on. Nietzsche refers to it as wretched contentment. He says, human beings don't seek, hap- seek happiness, only the Englishman does. <laughs> this is typical of Nietzsche. He's, he's thinking of the English utilitarians and, you know, people like John Stuart Mill and, and Jeremy, Jeremy Bentham. Um, but I don't understand why... Nietzsche's view... Sorry, go on, please, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, but I understand, so he's saying that 
the grind of life is a good thing, but what's the point if it's just constantly grinding away? Well, fair question. Um, what Nietzsche thinks is that um, he doesn't think that there's any value per se in just, as, as you put it, grinding away. Right? What he thinks is that suffering and hardship is indispensable to creative and brilliant achievement. Let's just think of Beethoven, right? And Beethoven is one of Nietzsche's favorite examples. Um, you know, Beethoven started going deaf very early on. Right? And by the time Beethoven writes the Ninth Symphony, which he conducts sort of, he's completely deaf. There was a shadow conductor doing the real conducting, but Beethoven stood up there at the, uh, wow, in the maestro's position in front of the orchestra. Um, and Beethoven, you know, you read about Beethoven's life, I mean, this was, of course, it was horrible, right? I mean, it was like, you know, a punishment, you know, out of the Greek mythology. Here you are, the most brilliant musical genius of your era, and you're losing your ability to hear anything, right? And despite that, I mean, despite real periods of despair where he almost gave up, he kept, right, and this is his internal structure of his drive, he was so driven to compose that he kept returning to that task, even in the face of this, you know, horrible fate that eventually befell him, namely that, you know, in the end, he couldn't hear anything at all, right? And yet, of course, he was, you know, such a musical genius that he didn't need to hear it to, as it were, know exactly what it would sound like and how it should be put together, um, uh, as a piece of music. So, you know, Nietzsche's view, I mean, we put it a little simply, uh, is that, you know, if Beethoven had been, you know, a Stephen Pinker acolyte <laughs> and thought that, you know, happiness and the absence of suffering were the most important things in life, he, A, he would have been miserable, and B, he wouldn't have done any, you know, he would have spent all his time trying to, you know, find solutions for his hearing problems and never would have pressed on with his work overcoming these tremendous obstacles that, that fate had put uh, put in his path. So that's Nietzsche's vision of a kind of, you know, where suffering and hardship is, you know, both overcome and proves a stimulus to continued, right, brilliant creativity. And of course, Nietzsche thinks of his own life the same way. Right? Um, he led a very hard existence. Uh, he was took a disability pension basically at the age of 35 because of, you know, uh, the migraines and the nausea, you know, he just couldn't keep working, and he spent the remainder of his productive life largely alone, traveling around trying to find decent climates in the Italian and French Rivieras where he could get some relief, and working, working nonstop. I mean, even when he couldn't see, or when his vision was impaired because of these migraine problems, you know, he would still spend hours a day, you know, writing and writing um, and developing his uh, his philosophical work. But, but was he saying that, I mean, to simplify it, because that's all I can do at this moment, but is he, was he saying that by going through hell, you'll find a sense of creative beauty because you've gone through a tough time? Is that, is that, um, is that the idea? Or? That, that, there's something, yeah. I think that's not an unfair characterization. Um, I don't think he thinks it's true of everyone. I think, um, but he does think that there are some people for whom, right, um, the, the difficulty is indeed a stimulus um, 
to to work to creativity um, and to you know overcoming yourself pressing pressing past these these obstacles um, you know what we shouldn't do is just fall into despair because in fact suffering is going to be inevitable um, in in all our lives in one way or another you know he has this uh, this famous line it was made famous by uh, Schwarzenegger in Conan the Barbarian, if you remember that yeah, movie. Of course. <laughs> he, he appropriates it at the beginning of the movie, but it is an actual line of Nietzsche's. What does not kill me makes me stronger. Uh, that's Nietzsche's line. You can see why Conan the Barbarian might have found that appealing. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, in a way, though, it's a bit of a tautology because, um, uh, in fact, uh, you know, what he really means is that if it doesn't, if what almost kills you doesn't make you stronger, then, well, it's in effect killed you, right? Mm. Um, so Nietzsche and Beethoven were people where, you know, um, it didn't quite kill them, right? And it did indeed make them stronger, more productive, more committed to their um, their artistic and creative and philosophical work. Um, and, you know, but they, of course, are unusual individuals. Plenty of people, I think, are uh, are indeed sadly killed and destroyed by the obstacles that uh, and you know and the misfortunes that that befall them. Um, do you, Do you think people should just sort of hang in there when they're going through hell? Is that kind of is that a better thing to do? Just hang well, in there, keep going, because the sun will come up, you know, tomorrow. What, what have you? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to say that the sun will necessarily come up. I think this is, goes back to where we started. People have to know themselves. People mm. have to know who they are and, and what they are, you know, able to do. So people who are undergoing, you know, profound suffering, I don't want to discourage anyone from not seeking medical help, <laughs> for example. I mean, even Nietzsche himself, you know, spent years going through all the remedies of, you know, 19th century medicine, right, um, to try to cure his insomnia, to cure the headaches and so on, not with not with much uh, much success, um, but I do think there's something to Nietzsche's attitude of, of amor fati, of love of faith, right? That is, if the hand you have been dealt, right, is one that involves a disproportionate amount of hardship, and some of us have been dealt such hands, um, uh, you probably are better off accepting it, right? Accepting it as a fact, that uh, that you've got to you've got to work with, right? Um, that is you know is going to just be part of who you are. I think it's a big part of you know the the treatment of people who have sort of ongoing um, psychological problems, anxiety disorders, and so on. Is part of it is accepting, right? That this is you know this is something you are prone to. You are prone to destructive patterns of thought. You are prone to, you know, catastrophizing situations, exaggerating them, and so on. And this belongs to you, right? And it's something then you have to, uh, you have to accept and work with, right, uh, in order to carry on. Now, I'm going beyond, beyond Nietzsche here, and I don't, I don't entirely feel either comfortable or competent in the, in the self-help, uh, or the offering advice to, people mode um but it's interesting but, it is interesting you know, it, a lot of things you say have been re- have been appropriated by self-help people 
you know, ownership of your problems. I think that's right. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there is there are aspects of uh, things in Nietzsche that lend themselves to that. You know, one of his his favorite ideas is the idea of you know self overcoming, right? Um, you know, and that was you know Beethoven and Nietzsche had a kind of self overcoming, right? They you know Beethoven could have been you know crippled and brought to a standstill by the prospect of losing his hearing, but he wasn't. Right? He overcame it. Nietzsche could have, you know, uh, been crippled and brought to a standstill by his physical maladies and just given up doing anything, but he wasn't, right? He, uh, he did overcome it up to a point, right? Nietzsche, Nietzsche probably had syphilis, which was very common in the 19th century, and ultimately he had a complete, you know, physical and mental breakdown, and then he was just an invalid for the remainder, remainder of his life. So it was a very tragic turn of events. But at that point, right, there was no overcoming it, right? It was pure, you know, syphilis eats away at the brain. It was, really? at this Ooh. point, a completely physical malady that couldn't be uh, couldn't be overcome. Uh, and, of course, this was prior to antibiotics. So, they, you know, this is why it was such a, a scourge in the 19th century. They had no effective treatment for it. Can, can, can I ask you, um, you know, I was watching a documentary about Nietzsche, and I think it was his sister. She ended up looking after him or something, and then she kind of... Tell me if I'm going wrong here, but she courted the Nazis who were very attracted to these ideas. Um, and is that right? That she, she kind of... She looked after him she, in his 80 years? certainly... That, that's roughly right. Um, his, his sister... Um, got married to uh, someone who was kind of a 19th century proto-Nazi. He was an anti-Semite, a German nationalist, and they actually moved to Paraguay to set up an Aryan community. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> Dear. It, oh, my God, is right. Nietzsche hated this guy. You know, he, he was, for a while, he wouldn't talk to his sister because she was in, involved with this lunatic. Um it, <laughs> The community, by the way, that they founded, there are still descendants of it. So if you go to Paraguay, you'll all of a sudden find all these blonde, blue-eyed Germans really? in, certain, in certain parts of the country. Really? <clears throat> Excuse me. How, how did they do that? Take a sip of water. What they they um they how how do they manage to have uh, their own group of Aryans? How, how do they how, how do they even that even come about? <clears throat> You know, they they recruited people, you know, who thought that it was important to have a racially pure community. Right? And, you know, the Germans, you know, there was a strand of, you know, reactionary German political, you know, thought and political movements that were, you know, predecessors of the of, of the Nazis. So they, you know, they they raised money and a bunch of them actually moved there. Now it, it fell apart, and they had to flee because I think there were allegations that the uh, that Nietzsche's sister's husband was misappropriating the funds, uh, and then you know she divorced him and came back to uh, uh, to Europe. And then after Nietzsche's uh, mental and physical collapse in 1889, um, first his mother sort of took charge of his care, but then she took it over. And now here's here's the the further irony about Nietzsche's story, which is at the time of his mental collapse, he was barely known. Um, 
In fact, he had had to pay to publish uh, the uh, his last few books. Right, the publisher wasn't interested in publishing, so he had to put up the money for it. Um, but shortly after the collapse, he started to become very widely recognized and very famous. So that by the time he died in 1900, he'd basically been an invalid now for about 11 years when he passed away. Um, he was easily the most famous sort of intellectual figure in, in Europe. Um, and you'll find, you know, in the early 1900s, George Bernard Shaw in England has become interested in him. And, you know, he becomes this complete intellectual sensation. So that in the early 1900s and 19-teens and 1920s, everybody wants a piece of Nietzsche, right? There were... There were socialist Nietzsche's, there was a feminist Nietzsche, there was a sort of romance, romantic Nietzsche, romantic poetry-inspired Nietzsche. Everybody's got some interpretation or reading of Nietzsche, including, of course, the, um, the Nazis. Now, Nietzsche's sister was very happy to cooperate with um, presenting uh, a version, because she took control of his literary estate, and she was very... Uh, happy to present the picture of Nietzsche that was friendlier to the uh, to the Nazi view, and this was this was not simple because Nietzsche, um, you know, Nietzsche has a whole chapter of one of his books called "What the Germans Lack." Um, if you read Nietzsche, you know that the people he hates more than anybody else are Germans. <laughs> he's, <laughs> really? he's viciously critical of Why? the Germans. Why? He hates. Um, because he thinks they're vulgar materialistic, nationalistic, militaristic, and they're not concerned with what makes life really great, which is Beethoven, which is, you know, great creative achievements. He says this is, you know, basically a nation of, you know, shopkeepers and industrialists, um, you know, and, and, and nationalists. And he doesn't, he's got no patience for, for any of that. But what, 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 so what would he prefer? What would he prefer? He'd want them to be into what? Culture or Uh, art or? Well, I think, you know, he would have preferred a society or culture that he would have preferred a society that was devoted to, um, you know, high culture, basically, right? A a society that was devoted to um, the cultivation of creative genius. Like a lot of 19th century Germans, you know, he held up the ancient Greeks as a kind of ideal, right? You know, so the Athenians, on the the one hand, um, are you know are pretty militaristic, but within Athens, right, this is the birthplace of tragedy, right, of philosophy as we've come to understand it, right. High culture is the essence of what Athens is about when they aren't you know engaged in battle with their with their enemies. So I think Nietzsche had this kind of, you know, romantic vision. Early in his life, he thought Richard Wagner, the the German composer, um, you know, was set to bring about a sort of cultural transformation of of Europe. Um, He soured on on Wagner after a while. Among other things, Wagner was another completely obsessed anti-Semite, as bad as Nietzsche's brother-in-law, whom he also hated. But can I I ask you about the the Hitler connection? Because... I asked because I was raised in a Jewish family and I struggled because because of the association with Hitler. I struggled with Nietzsche completely because most of it's over my head. But 
is it is it wrong for someone? Have I got the wrong idea about Nietzsche because of the association with Hitler? Uh, that is definitely the, the wrong idea. Um, Nietzsche is an anti anti semite. Um, as he as he writes in one of his final postcards to one of his friends, he says, "I am now having all anti semites shot." Um, <laughs> uh, he, he was he was very hostile to to anti semitism, and. And in many ways, he was very pro um, the Jewish people. Now, he's anti-religious. He hates the Christian religion, the Jewish religion. He hates all religions. But as to the people, right, um, you know, his, his books are full of what you would call philo-Semitic um, remarks. Um, indeed, he likes to taunt his anti-Semitic readers. So in one passage in, in his book called Beyond Good and Evil from... 1886, he says, um, um, he says, you know, he says, there's no question, you know, that the Jews are the, you know, s- you know, smartest people in Europe, and that they could easily take over Europe if they wanted to. But it's equally clear they don't want to. <laughs> and, and that kind of comment was, of course, a double jab at the anti-Semites, right, which is, the Jews are, in fact, better than you, right? And you, of course, have these paranoid fantasies that they're going to take over the world, but they actually have no interest in doing that whatsoever. And that was pretty typical of, of what he actually had to say. Um, now, the, the, the problem was, and this goes back to what we were talking about about the sister, um, is that when the Nazis came to power, um, they appointed as the head of the university system a guy named Alfred Baumler, who actually had written on Nietzsche. And Baumler, you know... Uh, had all these complicated explanations to try to explain away Nietzsche's hatred of German nationalism, Nietzsche's hatred of Bismarck, Nietzsche's hatred of anti-Semites, uh, Nietzsche's praise for the for the Jews. Um, it was it was quite a tortured um, reading, but it became the official educational policy of the of the Nazis, and all the other competing readings of Nietzsche, of course, were at that point that point suppressed. Now, one thing is true about Nietzsche, and I don't want to deny this. Um, I mean, he's not a Nazi, he's not an anti-Semite. I wouldn't be reading him if I thought either of those things were true. Um, Nietzsche is not an egalitarian. Uh, He does not think that um, all human beings are morally equal. He thinks that there are geniuses like Beethoven who redeem culture and redeem life, make it worth living. Right. And then, as he likes to say, there is the, the vast majority, the herd animals, as he calls them, those who are conformists, who just go along with whatever the social milieu requires of them. And that, of course, was, you know, Nazi Germany, right, was the triumph of the herd animals. There's no question Nietzsche would, that's what Nietzsche would have thought of it. Um, but his attitudes are illiberal and anti-egalitarian in that regard. What they lack is there's no racialized dimension to it the way there was with, with Nazis. Um, indeed, Nietzsche thinks, you know, the most, <laughs> the people, the race he dislikes the most are the Germans. So, so, uh, so, so his attitudes are, are complicated. So, so what, what's the, what was the, the um, Hitler's obsession then with Nietzsche? Is it the idea that, um, well, well, what is it? What was, what was the, the thing that gripped Hitler? So, I mean, there's a photo of Hitler next to a bust of Nietzsche, I think. I think I've seen that photo. Um, 
That's right. That was that was arranged right by Nietzsche's sister uh, when he visited the the Nietzsche archive, and uh, Hitler himself hadn't read a word of Nietzsche. You're joking? Um, <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, no, he didn't. Hitler didn't know. Hitler just, you know, it's the kind of thing where Nietzsche <laughs> was so famous that everybody sort of knew who he was. So he was like mm. a celebrated thinker. Everybody. I remember at the same time, you know, Thomas Mann, Andre Gide are very deeply engaged, you know, with with Nietzsche's ideas, you know, there are Nietzschean themes throughout Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, right? So, you know, he's this enormous cultural figure that Hitler knew, but Hitler didn't know, know anything about Nietzsche. What did the, you know, so partly it was just opportunism by the Nazis, right? You want to claim, here's the most important intellectual figure mm, in German yeah, life. Yeah. You want to claim him for your side. And as I said, there was, prior to the Nazis' rise to power, there were all kinds of readings of Nietzsche. I mean, when Nietzsche died in 1900, this is in a way telling, the New York Times obituary describes him as a major socialist thinker. <laughs> and he's not a major socialist thinker. Karl Marx was, Nietzsche was not. Um, but So there were all these different versions of, of Nietzsche floating around. Now, I think what the Nazis who actually had read Nietzsche Right, we're sympathetic to was this idea that you know there are higher and lower human beings, that there are great human beings and then there are herd animals, and the Nazis thought, well, we stand for, of course, the great human beings, the Aryans. Right, this they then give it a racial interpretation, um, and I think that they found very attractive. Um, the other thing is, I mean, his sister put together a lot of his writings that were unpublished at the time of his death and put them out under the heading The Will to Power. Um, and so gave that idea more prominence than it actually has in, in Nietzsche's work. And you can see in a simple-minded way how, you know, Nazis might think, will to power, that's what we are. We are the will to power. Um, but in point of fact, that's not what Nietzsche <laughs> had in mind at all. Nietzsche thought as a psychological matter that people are very attracted to having a feeling of power, but you can have a feeling of power in many different ways, right? So, you know, Beethoven, right, no doubt got a tremendous feeling of power when he was completed the Ninth Symphony, despite not being able to hear any of it. But, you know, the, the simple-minded version is, oh, Nietzsche's the guy who says uh, we should all will power and you should get as much power as you possibly can, and that's a wonderful thing. And... That isn't really what, what Nietzsche thought at all, but his sister, by packaging a lot of the ideas, including ideas he never otherwise published, under that heading, I think, added fuel to the, to the fire when it came to the Nazi appropriation of Nietzsche. So how, how, does, how does someone become a high human being? Um, what, what does that entail? Well, now, this is, in a way, it takes us back to, to where we were, but with one important caveat, right? I mean, again, remember, Nietzsche thinks about human beings as plants, right? And just as a tomato plant can't become an oak tree, it's not necessarily the case that every, any random person can become a higher human being in Nietzsche's sense. This is his kind of anti-egalitarian outlook. Um, for those who can be such a person, right, and you'll naturally ask, well, how do you know if you yes, are? Exactly, and yeah. Nietzsche doesn't have a, an answer to that. <laughs> but if you can become such a person, and of course you might as well act as if you could, yeah. right? Uh, 
absence of a clear answer, um, then it's a matter of, as he says, cultivating, right, nurturing, gardening your drives, right, so that, um, you know, he, he they kind of adherence to them, right, so that you're able to, as it were, focus on a project, right, say, writing music, okay, as Beethoven did, so that you're not, as it were, led astray by, you know, other drives that um, could overtake your life, right? His other favorite favorite example besides Beethoven was the, the German, uh, you know, poet, dramatist, scientist, Goethe, right? And Goethe, in a way, is, is a nice example of what Nietzsche has in mind, because, you know, Goethe was the Renaissance man of the late 18th, early 19th century. He did everything. Poetry, literature, essays, criticism, scientific investigation. He was a naturalist. You know, he went out and did observations about different parts of the natural world. So he, you know, he did everything. And when he was engaged in his creative work, right, he had that single-minded focus, this characteristic of a certain kind of genius. But then he'd take a break, right. And, you know, go off to Italy and have affairs with women and live it up for a period of time. So he discharged, he, he followed part of Nietzsche's advice from that passage from Daybreak I read earlier. He, he denied satisfaction to, you know, his sexual and other drives for long periods of time, but then he would indulge them for a short period of time before returning again to his creative work. So he had a kind of self-mastery, right? That was that was quite remarkable. That allowed him to both do right the, the things that he, things he was able to do, and then at the same time, every now and then he would need, as it were, a release right, for the other drives in his nature. So, so, I mean, what if you are someone who, you know, it takes courage to leave the herd, doesn't it? It does indeed, and. Uh, indeed, courage is a good word, and that's often the, the word Nietzsche, Nietzsche uses for it. Solitude, right? um, as he says, takes a lot of courage, and you know Nietzsche knew of what he spoke, because he spent you know extended parts of his life essentially alone, right? Or you know, um, but it does take courage. It does take courage. It's of course much easier to go along with what everybody else is uh, is doing. That's an all too familiar phenomenon, probably made worse by mass media and the internet and so on. Right? <laughs> you can immediately calibrate yourself to whatever everyone else is saying, doing, feeling. And in that regard, Nietzsche is a kind of you know radical individualist. Right? The people who matter to him are those who are able to go their own way. Um, as you know, they presented the class. He went his own way. You know, he drew on earlier influences, but he completely uh, changed the landscape of classical music. Um, and so too Nietzsche in, in philosophy. He went his own way um, against many prevailing uh, fashions. May, may, may I ask, it was Nietzsche who said, it, if you look into the abyss too long, eventually looks back into you. Is that Was that Nietzsche? Yes, he did say that. So, so did, when you spent you spent so long studying Nietzsche, did you ever? I mean, is it dangerous studying too much Nietzsche? <laughs> well, I think it can be, and I think we've we've certainly seen episodes where 
uh, maybe the most notorious cases took place here in Chicago, not far from where I live, actually. Uh, in the 19-teens, two young, uh, precocious boys, they were like students at the University of Chicago, even though they were only like 16. So they were very precocious. They discovered Nietzsche, and they decided they were going to prove they were beyond good and evil, as in the title of one of Nietzsche's books. And so they planned to murder another boy in the neighborhood and get away with the crime. And this would show that they were right, Nietzsche and higher human beings. Um, the abyss sure stared back into them. Um, they weren't very good readers of Nietzsche. You, you can't really find too many passages where Nietzsche suggests that the, the way to be a higher human being is to murder a teenager. Um, but uh, Nietzsche does, unfortunately, he is, as I said early on, a seductive writer, and I think he does lead some people astray. Um, you know, after years and years of reading and writing and thinking about Nietzsche and teaching him and talking about it with students and, and other people, um, I still enjoy Nietzsche tremendously. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I, I'm not very sympathetic to his kind of anti-egalitarian attitudes. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's the duty of an honest reading to acknowledge that, uh, that, that that's part of the way he thinks about things. But uh, I didn't fall into that particular abyss, let me say that. <laughs> Nietzsche is a terrible elitist in, in certain ways, um, but there's plenty, there's enough other interesting things about him that, uh, you know, one can, one can forgive certain excesses, as it were. Um, Dr. 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 Archer, thank you so much for your time. Uh, that, that was fascinating. Okay. Um, if people want to read more about you and, and, and more about your views on Nietzsche, uh, where should they go and what should they do? Well, uh, I have a book called Nietzsche on Morality, which is published by Rutledge. It's available in paperback. A second edition came out in 2015. Um, and that is aimed to be uh, introductory text for students about Nietzsche's critique of morality and also, it's a close reading of one of his most famous books called On the Genealogy of Morality. Um, people can also Google my name, L-E-I-T-E-R, um, and S-S-R-N, uh, Social Science Research Network. There they will find a lot of my papers on Nietzsche available online and free to download. Um, so if people want to you know, delve more deeply into particular topics, I've made available a lot of my work there and that's uh, accessible to uh, to anyone. Um, and the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, um, I wrote the essay there on Nietzsche's moral and political philosophy, and that's also free open access um, service. And I recommend the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy to to any of your listeners who are interested in philosophy. It's a very good free open access resource. Dr. Lutter, thank you so much for your time, and I wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Same to you. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye.